1993, three teenage boys, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, were accused and then eventually convicted of killing three boys in West Memphis. However, on August 19, 2011, due to new evidence, Damian, Jason, and Jesse entered Alfred Pleas and were then released from prison upon serving time for 18 years. The West Memphis Three case is one of the most infamous crime stories in America. It has been covered in numerous documentaries, books, and podcasts. And today, Paragold Citizen Judge Dan Stidham joins us to tell us what it was like serving as an attorney for Jesse Miss Kelly while also shedding some light on this case, which he talks about at length in his new book, The Harvest of Innocence, which comes out hopefully by the end of this year. And so, Judge Stidham, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for asking me. So, like, you know, many listeners, uh, I've watched Paradise Loss. Um, I was mentioning to you earlier, I just finished Damien Echo's book, Life After Death. Um, I've listened to different podcasts that have tried to dissect this case, and they've all shared their insights. But uh, I, I want to hear your perspective. But before we do that, I'm interested in even just knowing how did you get on this case? If I remember correctly, I think you were around 30 at the time. Is I, that right? I had just turned 30 years old. Yeah. It? Had practiced for five years, so um, uh, I got a phone call uh, on a Monday morning. I was in the shower getting ready to go to the office, and Judge David Goodson, who's also a Paragould resident, um, asked me if I would be willing to take on the endeavor of representing Jesse Miss Kelly. And, um, Were you familiar with that name yet? At that well, point? it was all all over the okay, news. Okay, at that and, point. Yeah. Um, the news story about the confession and the front page of the commercial appeal and and a copyrighted story, which is very unusual for a crime story uh, or any story for that matter. And um, I had just told my dad uh, we were fishing a few weeks earlier, and uh, he said, you don't have any business getting involved in something like that. And I said, there's no way I could possibly ever get involved in that. I'm too far away from West Memphis. and um, so Judge Goodson called me, and, of course, it completely took me by surprise. And um, my instinct was to do it because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I went to law school. And, and um, I had worked on a couple murder cases in law school working for uh, my mentor, W.H. Um, uh, Taylor in Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot more from him than I ever did in law school. <laughs> Uh, about trying cases, and um, then I worked on a couple of homicide cases here in Greene County. Uh, Which homicide cases in Greene County? Well, there was uh, uh, one involving a juvenile who'd shot his grandmother with a crossbow because uh, she wouldn't give him $10 out of her purse. Um, and then I was involved in the Jones murder, um, uh, which is, uh, I think that was around 1990. Uh, somewhere 89, 90, somewhere in that range. And, um, I'm not familiar. Maybe I'm not familiar with the Jones murder. Was that? Uh, Dr. Jones okay, and his yes. wife. Um, okay. Were, uh, and it's a very strange, I'm surprised somebody hasn't done a, a story or written a book about that. Ryan Vaughn has, now that you mentioned that, has tried to find someone to come on the podcast and talk about it specifically because he said I've, i'm very unfamiliar with it but he said it's a very interesting story it's as a well very interesting story what is uh what is the the i know you're coming to talk about the west memphis three but since this is paragold related what is the summary of that incident what happened in that case <clears throat> well the the 
the interesting part of the story is that uh, uh, Dr. Jones was having an affair with his uh, nurse or secretary. I can't recall which. It's been too many years ago. And um, they decided that they were going to hire someone to kill Dr. Jones' wife. And so um, they found someone to do it, but the person never intended to do it. He just took the money because he knew he, Dr. Jones couldn't go to the cops and say, I want my uh, money back for yeah. the guy didn't actually <laughs> follow through with the contract. <laughs> so um, ironically, they were murdered. And uh, The guy who said he was going to do the murder? No, it was a guy completely, totally didn't know him. He had actually spotted... Uh, one of his relatives had a hair salon in Jonesboro, and he had spotted uh, uh, the doctor's wife wearing a pretty nice ring, and it was custom-made. And um, after the murders, there was another murder or maybe two sets of murders in Jonesboro by the same gentleman. So he had nothing to do with the original never, plan. Never knew the people at all. How bizarre. And, uh, and um, someone brought the doctor's wife's ring into um, a local jewelry store, and uh, the jeweler was the one who actually made that ring for Mrs. Jones, and he called the police, and one thing led to another, and so the investigation started going down an entirely different path. Wow. And you, did you, where were you at? Were you defense at that point? I represented the, the nurse or the secretary. I cannot recall what. Because uh, she was one of the suspects? Or? Well, she helped him obtain the person to do the hit. And um, so uh, it's uh, I've read the confession. The guy, the defendant, was Leroy Bullock. And uh, in his confession, before he shoots the doctor, the doctor says, I've already paid you. Uh, he was wanting money in, in his watch, and he said, I've already paid you, and the guy didn't have any idea what he was talking about, and it later in his confession. So wow, it's um, it's really an interesting story. Absolutely. We definitely have a whole podcast just devoted to that story. I like that one. So you were working on that when you were how old? 28. That's crazy to think about. You know, I look at a kid oh yeah 28 or what do you know about anything it's like you're, <laughs> do you even you're, shave yet you're yeah. a kid yeah it's like <laughs> and um you know, my daughter's a lawyer now she's been practicing for i guess about four years and uh i look at her sometimes and it's like i can't believe you're a lawyer you're a kid um and uh so it uh it's just, it's amazing how your perspective changes oh as you absolutely get older. uh you know um uh, I'm actually old as old people are now, and uh, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. <laughs> how, did, how did I get here? But, uh, it's like, you know, when you're 30, you think somebody who's 60 is ancient. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, so, um, yeah. Well, you're, so you, you get that job when you're 28 or that case, and then I'm curious, you said to your dad um, that West Memphis is so far from here, what would I have to do with that? How did that make it over here? I, th I think it was because Judge Goodson was from Paragould and familiar with me. And um, uh, Was he over the county? Is that how that works? Cause he, I don't even understand. It was pure happen chance that, that uh, he was on the bench in, in uh, Crittenden County the day they were arraigned, and uh, there were people running to West Memphis to volunteer to represent 
Eccles and Baldwin, mm. but nobody wanted the Miss Kelly uh, case because of the confession. And so, so tell us about uh, the confession. Well, the, it's the only case I've ever known where uh, a defendant's confession was printed on the front page of the largest newspaper in the Mid-South. So um, it immediately poisoned the jury pool. And um, the confession, when you when I read it the first time, it was just frightening. It, it, uh, but it didn't make sense. There were inconsistencies as well as complete impossibilities uh, in the confession. So it was um, it was baffling. Huh. So at the very beginning, uh, once uh, we started getting, and I say we, my former law partner Greg Crow. Um, uh, we we were both appointed to represent Mr. Miss Kelly, and and we were struggling with these inconsistencies, and and um, uh, uh, and I had no experience whatsoever dealing with people with mental disabilities. And did you know whenever that was printed? Did you know that the confession that he had a mental disability? No. So that wasn't public knowledge at it the time. Like the uh, the public did not know that he was mentally challenged. We we had him evaluated, and it turned out the evaluator uh, was not the best choice. But uh, sometimes when you represent people who are indigent, you don't get to choose. Uh, so, um, but he basically was operating at uh, about the level of a five year old. Wow! So when you get the call from Judge Goodson, uh, at first. You said that you immediately knew you wanted to take it, or you were still kind of up in the air. No, I was, I was. I was thinking what I told my dad and what the odds were of me getting this phone call to begin with, and so I tried to call my law partner, Mr. Crow, and he didn't answer the phone. And Judge Goodson gave me twenty minutes to make up my mind. Oh wow! And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just talk to my wife, uh, Kim. And I knew she'd talk me out of it. I, and, mm-hmm. uh, so, um, mm-hmm. This was going to have some impact on our family. And and to my surprise, she said, do it. That's what you do. And um, mm. so I called Judge Goodson back and uh, accepted the responsibility. But I never dreamed that 30 years later I'd still be working on the case. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it would take some time. You just didn't know how much. Well, and I remember Judge Goodson saying, this ought to be quick and easy. He'll testify against the other two, and you'll be in and out. And and uh, so that was the – that's what we thought we were going to do. Ah. And so for the first 90 days or so, uh, we operated under the uh, assumption that he was guilty, and so were the other two. So did you actually believe he was guilty at first? I did. I did. Just and based off the confession? That and, and um, you know, the other – pieces of evidence that seemed to somewhat corroborate it. But, but, um, uh, on September of 93, um, I got a phone call from deputy prosecutor in Crittenden County. And he told me that, uh, they had some uh, DNA evidence that they'd found on my client's t-shirt in his residence. And it matched, uh, uh, the blood of one of the victims. Uh, of course, these are eight-year-old children, mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a very sad thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know, DNA was kind of new back then. It's like basically it was in its infancy, and so um, we had a hearing in September of '93. And when I got to the hearing, 
um, John Fogelman, the deputy prosecutor, mm-hmm. walked up to me and said, oh, by the way, that, that blood's not your client's. It's, uh, it belongs to, um, uh, or it's not, yeah, not the one victims. of the victims. Yeah. It belongs to your client. Sure. And, and um, so just a light bulb went off in my head. And it's like, um, maybe this kid is telling the truth. Uh, he's, he wasn't there. and it, he So just, was he immediately, whenever you met with him, oh, I, let me back up first off, because this is so interesting to me. I'm just trying to think about it. This is crazy, just because there's been so much written on this. Like, you get the call. You say, I'm going to do it. What's the next step at that point? Like, you think it's going to be quick and easy, right? That's what you've been told. This has been quick and easy. So are you just like, I'm just going to go meet with Jesse and Miss Kelly, just get to know him a little bit, personally ask him some questions? And, like, what's the next step in moving forward with the case and representing him? Well, there were tons and tons of uh, uh, discovery that came from the prosecutors and the police that we had to filter through and – and um, when I say filter, I mean filter because it looks like they just dumped it out on the floor and stuck it back in a box to shuffle it up so we couldn't. And why is that? It's is just, that just the was the norm back then? I'd, it wasn't the norm in any other case I'd ever worked on. Um, <sighs> but uh, it was very frustrating and, and cataloging all that stuff was very difficult and time-consuming. So... Um, uh, when I was told about the DNA match to the T-shirt, I um, every time I would go visit Mr. Miss Kelly in jail, he would tell me a different story. He couldn't get the story the same any time. And at that point, are you still thinking, okay, this is a, clearly he's lying because well, he can't get the right story? Or did you know at that point, no, he's mentally challenged and this is? If it was just me and Mr. Crow, he would, he would parrot back the confession as best as he could. Um, but if we took his father with us to the jail to, for the interview, he would deny he was there, and uh, the cops, you know, uh, threatened him and made him say it, and and um, uh, and it's like something's bad wrong here, and um, and of course I was young and inexperienced, and um, not again not familiar with dealing with people who are mentally handicapped, and. And he didn't appear to be mentally handicapped right. in the normal yeah. way that you would imagine. Right. And so um, I knew he couldn't read and write very well. Um, so when I was told about the DNA, I uh, on the way to Piggott, where he was being housed in the Clay County Detention Center, I decided I was going to try a different approach. And um, so instead of interrogating him, which is basically what I'd been doing for 90 days, um I just tried to get him to talk uh, because all he would say is when you would ask him questions is, yeah, uh-huh, or no, and no narrative to the story. and Conflicting if, reports. Uh, if, you, if you were present at the murder of three eight-year-old children, you would remember every detail, even if you're mentally handicapped. Yeah. And he just couldn't put the story together. And, of course, my primary concern at that time is how am I going to get this kid to testify against the other three? They'll eat him up alive in the courtroom on cross-examination. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm trying to save this kid's life, uh, the death penalty. That was our goal. And um, so that particular day, I went to question him about the uh, the blood on the T-shirt. And um, so I said, um, hey, do you have 
any idea how your blood got on uh, that white T-shirt in your bedroom? Mm. And he goes, yeah. He says, when I get mad at people, I throw soda bottles up in the air and break them with my fists. And um, he showed me his fists, and they were just littered with scars. And uh, and I didn't even say anything about the DNA because I knew you wouldn't understand it anyway. Right. So I thought, but at that time, I still didn't know there wasn't a match. Um, I just oh. said, do you know why there was blood on your T-shirt? And then he told me about the soda bottles. Yeah. So, so when I got to the hearing in September, late September, that's when I got this epiphany. Um, the kid was telling the truth about the soda bottles, and he was trying wow. to parrot the story because he didn't want to die in the electric chair. They told him that he was going to die in the electric chair, and we didn't even use the electric chair anymore at that time. Who's they? Uh, the state of Arkansas. Uh, so, like, I mean, who's they that told him he would die? The police officers who interrogated him. Wow. And we have evidence of those, like, conversations or those recorded anywhere? For some reason, uh, even though they had the capability to videotape uh, the interrogations, the officers decided not to do that. And so they had, like, two or three pages of notes, handwritten notes, and then an, a 20, 29 or 30-minute audio tape. Yes, and I've heard some of the audio tape. And the audio was the tape, leading questions. That, that's all they could do. They could never get him to establish a narrative, just like I couldn't. And they kind of built the narrative uh, up. Right? And at one point uh, during the uh, um, <coughs> confession, uh, I, I no, no longer call that a confession anymore, his statement, because um, it's not a confession. It's the mm. officer's confession. He was the one telling him what to say or leading him into what to say. And um, one of the first questions was, um, uh, what time did you and Damien and Jason get to the creek where the bodies were found? And he said, uh, well, the little boys skipped school that day. And, uh, of course, the officer knew they hadn't because they were picked up at school by their parents at 3 o'clock. And um, so the officer knew it was wrong, but he just kept going. Mm. Like, Like, I guess he didn't think it mattered. So, well, what time were they killed? Uh, you know, the 9 o'clock, 9.30. Then, um, and then they asked him, well, do you know how to tell time? Were you wearing a watch? And he said, uh, I don't have a watch. And, uh, um, and then at one point, um, they asked him if he knew what a penis was. And <laughs> even a 17-year-old kid who's, oh, who's – yeah. uh, mentally handicapped still is going to know what that is yeah. so the, the it's when wow. i when i started looking at the confession through the prism of this doesn't make any sense i mean it's not just wrong it's impossible it couldn't have happened this way so why uh, did they ever think to begin with that it was like what made them even ever knock on the door of Jesse Miss Kelly uh, his house and say come with us we got some questions they, the police decided from day one that uh, the only person who could be responsible for this um, is uh, Damien Eccles. They hated Damien, right? They did not like Damien, and he was kind of the weird kid. Yes, all black. Uh, listened to heavy metal music, and at that time, that wasn't the norm. And Yeah. Um, In his book, he talks about, um, I'm not sure who the, is it the sheriff or the chief of police or someone who was on his case, like following him from the time he was like, 
I don't know, 13, 14. A juvenile officer. Okay, juvenile officer. Yeah, and even when he moved up to the northwest part of the country with his parents, like he was still like calling the police there, like look out for this guy, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, he'd be walking down the road, Robert, and he said like he would just like maybe just went over to one of his buddies' house and he's just sitting there like drinking Mountain Dew or something. They'd pull over and be like, where you been? Like, my buddy's house. And then they'd like start interrogating him mm-hmm. just for, you know, no reason. They were had him in the interrogation room within 48 hours of the bodies being discovered. So they had complete total tunnel vision. And um, then there was a reward offered, and that's always a good or bad thing depending on what kind of information you get. Um Basically, this all boiled down to, uh, to borrow a, a quote from uh, an article that was written about the case. It all boiled down to a well-told campfire story. And um, at, at that time in history, there was a widespread belief among law enforcement and the general public uh, that there were such a thing as satanic mm-hmm. ritual homicide mm-hmm. uh, that was also backed with the McBarton preschool case. Um, and um, kids' pictures, missing kids' pictures were on milk cartons. Uh, and um, uh, there was this huge belief uh, that, that uh, every missing kid was, um, had been killed by a satanic cult. Where did that come from? Well, the, the movies of the day, uh, Damien um, from The Omen. Yes. Um, Jason. Uh, a villain in, in a horror film, and I can't remember the name of that movie. Um, a Nightmare on Elm Street? Yeah, that's it. Or is it Friday 13? I can't remember. I think it's Nightmare on Elm okay. Street. I think there was like a one, yeah, a two, yeah, and a yeah. three. But um, So the police officers developed their theory that this was a satanic ritualistic homicide, and that's exactly what they got Miss Kelly to say. And they told him, if you'll just tell us, uh, we'll let you go home with your dad. So they, there's no, like, finding a black, you know, trench coat or something out there. They're like, that's Damien's or whatever. There's there no sort of real clear evidence no right out of the physical, gate. They're like, it's... No physical evidence wow. has ever been found to establish a link between the three defendants. So then they go to Jesse, because I guess, did Jesse and Damien run around together some? They really didn't. They knew each other, but Damien... <laughs> that's bizarre. Damien and Jason didn't like Jesse because he was mentally handicapped and they just they just didn't like him so uh but the police were so desperate to corroborate um and and pin this on damien that uh, they finally on june 3rd picked uh, mr miss kelly up at his trailer park and uh the officer and jesse's senior um jesse's father they talked about the reward money thirty thousand dollars i think it was at that point and they even talked about what they were going to do with the reward money. And, of course, the officer got amnesia about that. Um, but there was a witness who overheard it. But um, uh, the jury just so they were afraid to find him not guilty. Wow. Um, and so our trial was first. It started in January of 94 and um, lasted about three weeks. Um, the jury came back. I was able to inject. It was in Corning, is that right? In Corning, yes. And um, um, I was able to inject enough reasonable doubt. I actually had two um, world-class experts that volunteered without being paid 
to come in and testify about the false confession. And um, uh, but the judge excluded most of their testimony, so the, the jury never got to hear most of it. And had they had heard it, I think they might have acquitted him right there on the spot. So um, it's uh, gut wrenching. And uh, you were and convinced by the end of the trial, like, or even before it even started, like this guy's innocent. Yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, were so, you surprised whenever he was pronounced as guilty? Or were you like, I know he's innocent, but the way this is going, were you already reading the writing on the walls? Like, they're going to hang this guy. The way the judge manipulated our, our defense and uh, kept us from putting on the evidence that we needed, uh, I, I really thought we were in the corner. Uh, but the jury came back uh, with uh, guilty verdicts on two counts of second-degree murder and one count of first-degree murder, so we we were able to dodge the death penalty. So that was off the charts. So I don't. I guess I'm, I'm clear on the details. In the first-degree murder, where in his statement, was he saying that he personally killed one of the kids? Nope. He was merely a witness. But there was one sentence in the so-called confession where he states that he. One of the little boys took off running, and he ran him That's down right. and brought him back. But he says he never uh, huh. hit him, you know, murdered him. But that still uh, counts as first-degree murder? It makes him an accessory. So um, uh, he's just as responsible as the other two. It's sort of like the a lot of people make the mistake of thinking if they're just the lookout and the getaway driver, they're not really guilty of the actual crime, but mm-hmm. they are under the law. So he went from being a... Uh, a false witness to a false co-defendant and false confessor. So at any point did Jesse, I guess, come to play? I know you said a lot of times he was just, uh-huh, and sometimes he gave um, uh, conflicting stories. Did he ever come right out and tell you, I did not do this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, uh, after the soda bottle mm-hmm. explanation just, uh, you know, my law partner and I looked at each other and was like, holy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we got a problem, and now we're only 90 days from trial, and we're starting over. Um, so we had to go back, sift through all the, all the discovery again, um, and start trying to track down experts. And uh, Dr. Richard Offshay, who's a social psychologist from Berkeley, um, uh, agreed to testify because he was doing research on false confessions. It was a brand new science, oh. and now it's generally accepted um, and and can be explained scientifically. But back then, no one could wrap their mind around the fact that why would someone confess to something they didn't do? Right. And there's still people today. They're a very small group of people, but they're very loud and and uh, absolutely convinced that all three of them are guilty. Oh, 100%. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've talked to several people that still believe that. And uh, I've learned over the years not to argue with them because uh, you can't. Uh, it's like yeah. trying to convince somebody that um, mm-hmm. uh, there's no such thing as COVID or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. Mark Twain once said, uh, don't argue with a uh, fool because nobody onlookers won't be able to tell the difference so, <laughs> so uh, I just uh, just kind of say okay we'll have to agree to disagree but 
Yeah. I was there every minute of this case. Uh, and, um, uh, and the book is not about the case. Uh, that's sort of a misconception. Um, it's about my role in the case and what I did in my story because mm. everybody knows the, what happened um, because there's been three or four documentaries and a couple of books, but um, I've got inside information that nobody else has, and um, I couldn't talk about it for years um, because I didn't want to poke the bear that uh, I needed the Arkansas Supreme Court to reverse his conviction so he could get a new trial. And uh, so I just kind of kept things to myself and jotted down notes and kept memorandums. and and. Um, uh, so once that trial was over, you didn't just move on? No. Uh, when the sentence was announced, uh, life for first-degree murder and uh, 40 years uh, for the uh, second-degree murder charges, so it was life plus 40, which is essentially life. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Jason Baldwin, they basically, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time because he was Damien's best friend. So they just assumed he had to be involved in it too. And Miss Kelly actually said that Jason Baldwin was the one who, uh, did the sexual mutilation of the children. And, uh, uh, so, uh, he got life without parole and then Damien got the death penalty. Did you ever talk? Were you able to ever talk with Damien and Jason, or that is that was that considered like? Yeah, it would, it would have been unethical during okay. the, the time. But um, uh, later on, after the initial convictions, I actually uh, got to know Jason because his lawyers had abandoned him, and uh, I filed some pleadings on his behalf. Uh, I drafted them for him to sign, not me to sign, because I had a conflict, but. I couldn't stand to see that kid be left behind, so I was playing from the booger bushes, uh, helping him navigate uh, this appeal world without um, uh, um, a lawyer. So uh, when I drafted uh, his Rule 37 petition, uh, when I went to the prison to meet him for the first time and talk to him to try to convince him to sign this or his appeal was going to run, I wasn't sure he'd sign it. But um, uh, somehow I was able to convince him, and uh, his appeals would have run out if he hadn't signed it. Wow. So and that's whenever he'd been there for how long? Uh, at that point, it was we were about uh, five or six years into the appeal process. What was your um, – how did you experience Jason? He's a great kid. Um, in fact, I – I speak to him often. We mm. text and talk on the phone and, mm. and uh, gotten some valuable insight from my book about um, uh, his perspective. And uh, he speaks a lot about the case. And, and um, he seems to have come through all of this um, unscathed. It's, I, I, really? I, that's, that, that amazes wow. me. And it could be a, you know, a facade. Yeah. But... Uh, it, um, he, he's working uh, on a, uh, a proclaimed justice. It's a nonprofit organization mm -hmm. that helps wrongfully convicted persons get out of jail, and they've had some success uh, doing that. He's uh, um, out of, works out of Texas, 
with some uh, donors and people. They do fundraisers and and hire lawyers and experts, and they've had, like I said, some some very good success. So, um, my client um, is mentally challenged. Uh, never. You still connect with Jesse when I can find him. Because uh, he's, he's still he's closest of all of them, right? He went right back to the same trailer park that he'd left. Yeah. Uh, so that's the only two places he's known is prison and um, that trailer park. And I did everything I could to keep him from going back there, but he wanted to be with his dad, and that's understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Jackson, um, yeah, uh, who did the second film, offered to buy him a house across the river in Mississippi if he would just because we were so afraid that the West Memphis police were going to, you know, harass him and do everything they could to get him to violate the terms of the Alfred plea. Um, so, uh, um, so far so good. We made it through the 10 years. Um, what can they do to violate that? I didn't even know that was a, so they there were some conditions okay. of the, of the suspended position of sentence, uh, um, but they weren't as stringent as they would normally have been, oh, okay. you know, for someone who was pleading guilty uh, off the bat. So, uh, and and I was, and a lot of people are surprised to hear this, but I had I had no idea that the Alfred plea was even on the table. Uh, at that point, I was a witness in the case um, because um, whether I was an effective advocate on his behalf uh, uh, was the issue, and so I had to fall on my sword. And admit that I was 30 years old, and this was my first jury trial, a uh, triple capital murder case, and um, I didn't have the experience to handle something as big as this. Uh, and um, that's just the cold hard facts and truth of the matter. And um, was that hard for you to? I was worried more about my family. Than I was me. Uh, I remember setting my kids down and saying, "Hey, look, uh, I don't know how this is going to play out in the news, but but uh, people are probably going to be saying bad things about me, and and um, because I was so young during the trial and made some mistakes, um, and uh, to my, I figured kids at school would be telling, you know, picking on them and saying things, and like your dad's defending a murder, uh, or yeah, and uh, so it's it's just. Um, uh, didn't turn out that way. I, I had lawyers from all over the country uh, who were reading newspapers telling me how uh, proud they were of me for mm-hmm. doing the right thing. And so, um, uh, of course, I was going to be the greatest lawyer in the world in the eyes of uh, the judge presiding, who happened to be the trial judge. And so he denied um, um the, the fact that I was ineffective. So uh, we were in the process of appealing that, and I wasn't allowed in the courtroom during the, the hearings because I was a witness, and so I never got to listen to the testimony. And so when I started writing the book right after the Alford plea, I actually had to go back and review all those transcripts that because I, I wasn't in the courtroom, and uh, they're, they were actually quite interesting. Mm. So... Um, uh, then all of a sudden I get a phone call um, from the prosecutor. It says, I just thought you might want to know uh, your boy's getting out of jail tomorrow. And I said, what are you talking about? And um, so he said, yeah, Miss Kelly. And I said, how and why yeah. and what happened? 
And uh, all he could tell me was there was an Alford plea, and I didn't even know what that was, so I had to Google it. Uh, and it's Alford versus North Carolina, and it's basically uh, like a tie football game. Uh, the prosecutor says we got a case, and the defendants claim they're not guilty, uh, but there might be enough evidence to sustain a conviction. So in lieu of um, pleading guilty, we're going to plead guilty while maintaining our innocence. It's sort of a described by one of my colleagues as an oxymoron. Because, yeah. uh I won't accept someone's plea in my courtroom unless uh, they are willing to uh, admit that they actually did the crime. Right. And uh, I have people all the time to say, well, I didn't do it, but I'm going to plead guilty because I'm ready to get this over with. I don't want to come back for trial. And I said, nope, I'll see you at trial because i got to sleep tonight. And I'm not going to put an innocent man in jail or, or convict him uh, unless they either admit they did it or there's proof they did it or both. And um, so. where, do you, do you, where do you think that comes from? So you, it seems like you have a pretty high moral compass because you could have easily – I mean, you didn't have to stay connected to this case for as long as you had and do the work that you did. Like, what do you think? Has that just always been in you? Was it something you were taught? My parents uh, are outstanding people, and I wouldn't be who I am today without them. And um, when I wanted to quit scouts and instead of completing the last few merit badges for my Eagle Scout uh uh, award uh, I kept getting a kick in the tail uh, to, to get it done and um, if I ever wanted to stop doing something in the middle of whatever it was mm-hmm. uh, I hated track I, I ran track uh, and I hated it because I sat there all day in the sun and, and to the last event and then it's over it's just <laughs> the most boring thing in the world so I wanted to quit and he, my dad said nope once you start something, you see it to the end. And so that was kind of the mentality that I grew up with. And um, he also uh, taught me how to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he said, don't ever back down from a fight and don't mm-hmm. ever give up. Because even mm-hmm. if you don't win, you're going to make them not want to mess with you yeah, again. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, then I will beat you when you get home. <laughs> so um, I, I, I grew up, and a lot of people might think that's harsh, but uh, – um, I guess it's like Johnny Cash and a boy named Sue. Is he was preparing me for the real world? <laughs> That's it. And, um, I just had a conversation with someone uh, yesterday about Angela Duckworth's book. Uh, it's entitled Grit, and she's I think she's from Harvard, but she did all this research and discovered that the people who are most successful, more than IQ, more than test scores, more than any of that degrees, is the level of grit someone has. That's what you're talking about. Well, I learned early on um, that you can make up for lack of experience with, uh, uh, I guess I shouldn't say the real word, bull. uh, (laughs) Tabacity. And and guts. Yeah. And um, that's the way I went through this thing. And um, as soon as the convictions were announced and the sentence was imposed, I leaned over to Jesse Miss Kelly, who's about this tall, and I said, this ain't over, and I'm never going to give up on you, wow. and uh, I'm going to get you out of prison. Wow. And um, it took me 18 years and 78 days, but I did it. Wow. Something to be proud of. Did you get a chance to go? It was in Jonesboro, wasn't it? Yes. You got a chance to go? I did. Um, 
Uh, it was. I think they did it on purpose, but um, they they held the hearing in the smallest courtroom uh, they have uh, to keep the media out, mm-hmm. and because the, the the prosecutors were not real happy about uh, having to take this way out, uh, because um, uh, I think they felt it was a bad reflection on them. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, but they wanted it to go away because uh, they knew we were going to get a new trial. Mm-hmm. And it was clear to us that we were going to get a new trial. But uh, Damien, um, his attorneys came up with this idea, and he had two sets of lawyers, East Coast lawyers and West Coast lawyers. And while the West Coast lawyers were busy cap, uh, trying capital murder cases in California, uh, they kind of, I wouldn't use the word sneak, but kind of under the radar proposed this to uh, the attorney general and the prosecutor and and said, instead of doing a new trial, why don't we just uh, um, shake hands and call we'll it We'll make even. this easier on everybody. And, um, of course, how do you tell um, a kid who's been on death row for, for over 18 years, uh, you get to go home tomorrow if you just say you did it while maintaining your innocence? Is um, that difficult for them? For my client, it was like, hey, I'm going home. You know, care, it, yeah. it took him about a half a second to decide that's what he wanted to do. And um, Damien obviously was ready to get off death row. Um, the only holdout was Jason Baldwin. He said, I didn't do this. Um, I'm not going to admit that I did it, and I'm not taking the deal. And Wow. The prosecutor. And that all three couldn't go. It was all, all, or, three. all or none. And so all this behind the scenes, situ- and I was completely, totally unaware because I wasn't in the loop. Mm-hmm. And the West Coast lawyers, who I was most closely aligned with, um, they um, they didn't have time to you know, get involved because the, the judge would not release them from the trial to come to Arkansas to try to, you know, talk these kids out of doing this. And um, but in the end, it's their decision. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and I, in a similar situation, I think I would have chose the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you've already spent the best mm-hmm. years of your life behind bars for something you didn't do, mm-hmm. so how can you uh, blame them? But right. what that Alfred plea did is it created a situation uh, where um, questions remain unanswered. And yes. so there's no closure. Um, and that's why I continue to work on the case even after the case was legally admit its legal conclusion is there why has the state not reopened the case to try to figure out who who did it because it would make them look even worse than they already looked I and mean, that's uh, really it that's the short answer um the other answer and i think this is what the judge said the other day when they were trying to retest some of the evidence is hey you already pled guilty and your appeal time is run so this case is over and, um, Do the families not push for it of the victims? A couple of them are, are deceased, and um, two parents, Michael Moore's parents, still believe that they're guilty. Um, uh, Mark Byers actually came over to on, on the defense team at the end mm-hmm. and um, said he thought they were innocent. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and Pam Hobbs, the mother of Stevie Branch, uh, she did the same as well. So, and it was clear that 
people like Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Eddie Vedder and Johnny Depp and uh, nameless others um, were willing to see this thing through. And they knew that Peter Jackson's documentary was going to be coming out about the same time that the judge was deciding whether to grant a new trial or not. And um, so the state decided uh, we'll bury this and um, uh, we can always say we won because they were found guilty. And the defense can always say, well, we pled guilty but maintained our innocence. So it's just creates this situation where it's that's why it's still in the news today after all these years um because i'm sure damien especially jason based i'm sure he wants to well, be, to prove he's innocent right damien would would uh certainly like to you know uh clear his name uh, jason would definitely want to because he wants to go to law school and become a lawyer when he can't with the felony conviction my client, it affects the least because right. he's never going to be able to hold down a job and uh, lives, you know, uh, hand to mouth. And most of the, I buy him cell phones and he loses them. Uh, and so I, I keep track of him through his aunt. Um, and uh, his father has now passed away. And mm. it's, um, it's difficult um, uh, to keep up with him. But I, I talk to Jason quite frequently. Um, Last time I talked to Damien was in 2015 at Bruce Sanofsky's uh, memorial service. He was one of the uh, HBO filmmakers. Mm. But what do we take away from this, you think, as just, you know, someone like me or the listener? Um, what do we do with this story? Do we just continue to say, what a fascinating story? Or well, is there something that we're to learn or take away or to do? If you read my book, and I hope you, people do, uh, it's not about money for me, and uh, I'll never be able to get reimbursed for all the hours I put into sure. writing this book. It's been a 10-year process, and even longer if you consider that I just was journaling all day, every day. Um, it's about telling the real story, what happened and how it happened, why it happened, and what we can do to keep it from happening again. Mm -hmm. And so my my goal was to tell my story, uh, my Second goal was to unequivocally explain why Jesse Miskelly uh, did what he did and gave his statement and prove it was false and um, then set the record straight on the Alford plea. Mm. And I thought if I could accomplish those three goals that uh, people would finally be able to figure out uh, exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, I was there. I was the only lawyer that stayed on the case the whole time. And um, even though I wasn't an architect of the Alfred plea, I um, I was there every minute, and I mm -hmm. saw what was going on behind the scenes that I couldn't tell anybody or talk about because um, I still was counting on the court system to do its job. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is a compilation of my story. Everybody knows, you know, the, the trials and and uh, the convictions and the Alfred plea and documentaries and so this is not about that it's about me uh and my story and what i did and my personal interactions and how it affected my family how it affected me um i now suffer from post-traumatic stress uh because of all the things that uh, i went through and in what way um like how does it impact you yeah you know, just um every may um 
start uh, having panic attacks, for lack of a better word for it. Uh, and um, I hate May because uh, everything's turning green, and it reminds me it's just as vivid as it was 30 years ago. So I, um, um, I've i learned to, to cope with it. At mm-hmm. first I didn't know what it was or understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, I opened when we were moving to our new place uh, the last few weeks. I, a couple of days ago, I opened up a three-ring binder, didn't know what it was, and it was all these autopsy and crime scene photographs of these kids all mangled um, and um, uh, just sends chills down your spine. So um, my marriage didn't make it um, because of all the time I was spending working on the case, flying all over the country, trying to get experts to help. and. Um, so, um, after 24 years of marriage, uh, I got a divorce. Mm. Um, but, um, it's a big sacrifice. uh, And, and, you know, like Jimmy Buffett said, um, hell, it could be my fault. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I blamed her, she blamed me and neither one cared. Uh, you know, it's just, um, we drifted apart and. And uh, I hated it for the kids, but they're a lot more resilient than I imagined. Mm. And uh, all of them, to a T, um, have told me how proud they are of me that I stuck it out and did mm. the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you seem like certainly did the right thing, at least as, you know, when you could have taken the easy way out. And But just knowing that this was someone's life, you know, I, uh, I applaud you for going above and beyond to try to help keep a kid from suffering for a crime that he didn't commit. And so I'm curious, how did this impact you, you think, as far as a judge today? Um, I think it's made me a better judge um, because I uh, I don't take things at um, face value because um, sometimes things don't appear as they are. And... Uh, working with some of the best experts on the planet, uh, forensic experts and some of the best lawyers in the country, um, I've learned a lot um, about uh, how unreliable eyewitness testimony is, for example, um, um, and forensics. And, and so I, I, I have a keen eye for that in the courtroom. And, and um if you and I were to witness uh, the same event, we would each have a different story. Mm-hmm. And when I taught criminology at ASU uh, about 12, 13 years ago, um, uh, I don't know if you'll recall this, but uh, ASU had a game that was on ESPN, mm-hmm. and some college kid, probably intoxicated, ran across the field in his underwear. And uh, it was on TV, and so... I, I asked everybody in the class one night, I said, what color underwear did that guy have on? And I got 20 different answers. Uh, mm-hmm. They all remember seeing the guy run across the field, but they couldn't remember the details. And that's just how our minds work. And so um, I'm, I, I take a look at things a lot differently than I did as a young lawyer. And, and in my book, uh, after many, many tries, uh, it's, it's been a, Decade-long process, and the first manuscript was 550 pages. Wow. And um, my co-author uh, and editor uh, from New York, uh, he said, this, this can't, we can't do this. This is too much. We've got to 
narrow it down to half that. And it's like, are you kidding me? Um, and so we chose um, a non-linear narrative um, to tell the story. And so it's basically the older me looking back at the mm-hmm. younger me going, wow, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. Or I can't believe I missed that. And, uh, or I, I can't believe the judge did that. Or I can't believe the prosecutor did that. Um, or the police did this. And you know, I, you, you grow up as a kid, you're taught that police officers are your friends. And uh, they're not. Uh, they're absolutely not your friends. Their job is to solve a crime. And if you get the right type of person with a personality that's uh, suggestible, uh, it's very, very easy to get a uh, false confession. Mm-hmm. And so uh, having worked with uh, people like Dr. Offshay and uh, attorneys um, uh, John Phillips Bourne and, and um, Michael Burt, um, it's just been fascinating to watch. And um, uh, in 1998, I discovered five years after the trial that uh, the marks on the bodies were not uh, a sexual mutilation and certainly not a cult uh, killing <laughs> for two reasons. Uh, the FBI had conducted a very, very detailed investigation into satanic crimes and could not document a single case on the planet. Wow. And um, uh, it just, um, uh, at that time, and in, in space in the world uh thank god we didn't have facebook uh oh or gosh. social media back then because this thing would have bloomed oh, like some of this crazy crazy. stuff we got going on today where yeah. everybody believes anything they read on yes. facebook yeah um so it influences elections it influences medical care and and uh risk to others because you're afraid to get vaccinated and mm-hmm. all the lies that are being told and so um uh, it was difficult enough without that. I can't imagine doing it today. But uh, oh no! Um, so um, it. Uh, I actually have a suspect now. Um, I can't talk about it obviously because I don't want the, uh, the cat to get out of the bag. But I can place him in West Memphis uh, at or around the time uh, of the murder. How did you come up? How long did it take you to come up with the suspect? Like how many years ago was this? Uh, it was three or four or five, maybe. Um, uh, my wife, Leanne, watches criminal stuff on mm-hmm. Discovery 24-7. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was up working late on my book one night, and I walked to the room, and I heard a story that was on Forensic Files, and uh, they were talking about a dump site. And... Um, and so they asked, they found a body at this dump site and they asked the mother to come out and identify the clothing on the remains to see if it was her child. And uh, she said, that's not my kid. That's not her pajamas. And so bodies everywhere. And so I started listening to the story and then I started doing the research. And, and um, so it's, uh, I called local law enforcement in the state where he was convicted and they wouldn't give me the time of day, but, uh, through open source intel on the internet, I was able to find uh, the chronology of the events that uh, they'd sent out to all the other law enforcement agencies in the country to see if they could match uh, um, DNA to anything. And so um, 
uh, you know, I don't know how good a suspect he is, but I'm certainly going to leave no stone unturned. Uh, uh, so Sam, is he still alive? Uh, y- yes. Uh, he's serving life in prison. Okay. Uh, For so, a totally different murder. Uh, yep. Yeah. He's not going anywhere. Yeah. So, uh, um, but, you know, I, I, the thing that slowed me down other than selling my house and buying a smaller one, um, uh, my son Chris passed away last October, and and um, I knew for the first time what these parents uh, did and how they felt and the grief they suffered, and and some of them are still uh, suffering and never get over that. And mm-hmm. so now I have a new perspective that I didn't have when I when I wrote the book, and so I'm going back through it one more time. To see if any of that new awareness on my part of grief and losing a child uh, might alter my perspective somewhat. Yeah, I certainly have more sympathy for them than I've ever had. Oh yeah. And my son was 34, and theirs were eight. But um, I, I want to go back through that. Plus, it seems like every week something else happens. Uh, someone will call me and say, did you know this or did you know that? And I'll say, no, and then I'll research it. And I can't believe that that happened. And it, um, if I can document it, I put it in the book. And so I've got to go back and add some stuff that just blew my mind when I discovered it. So there's going to be a lot of things that people have never heard about, never knew about, and um, uh, I'm going to uh, – Bad metaphor, but I'm gonna all the all the bones that the state of Arkansas wanted to bury about this case and never see the light of day. I'm I'm gonna dig them up. It's and, great. Uh, they're not gonna like. I it can't wait much. to read it. But it, uh, it's, it's it's really a fascinating uh, story, and um, I got to meet a lot of interesting people and and a lot of people who were willing to give money and. And time and energy, uh, sometimes for free, and uh, are willing to pay for it. And um, uh, Jason languished in prison, um, uh, and there were times I get letters from him, and he said, "I, I just want to give up. This is crazy. I'm never going to get out." Uh, and I said, "Yeah, yes, you are. Um, you're lucky. You don't realize how lucky you are because there's been documentaries and." Um, uh, feature film, books. I said, you got people on your side. Mm -hmm. You're not like a lot of other people who are wrongfully thrown away and totally forgotten. Yep. And nobody cares and uh, there's nobody there to help them. And you've got a team assembled and it's a big one. And uh, this ain't going away. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, and the state knew that. So that's that's how the Alfred plea kind of came about. Well, you gotta you gotta get settled into your house so you can write the book and get it out by this Christmas. I, I told my wife today I'm not gonna go back to the mini storage and unload <laughs> any more stuff because it's too hot. And um, I had that episode with uh, the heat uh, a few weeks ago and ended up in the hospital. So I, uh, when it gets about 50 degrees, I think I'll go through the rest of the stuff. We've got everything we need to get by. So, um, but I need to get my office set up again. And find everything and get it back in its spot and and uh, then start going back through the manuscript one final time. 
Well, I want to I want to end with uh, some rapid fire questions like we typically do. But before I have to ask, because you you mentioned grief while ago, and and you know I'm just convinced the older I get that everybody experiences grief on one level or another. You can't live in a kind of a fallen, broken world without experiencing it. I'm I'm just curious. Is there anything that you've learned that you could share as far as how to grieve well, or just the grieving process, whether it's the loss of a loved one or something different? Like what? What have you learned about grief now that you've had to learn to live with it? Well, you know, being a tough old uh, mm-hmm. judge and defense lawyer, and uh, my instinct was to isolate myself, and uh, that's the worst thing you can do. Mm. Um, you got to be willing to reach out for help, and you've got to have a support system, and. Uh, lot of friends and uh fortunately i i had that and mm-hmm. um so i went through all the stages of grief uh, denial um and uh bargaining mm-hmm. i think is the next stage mm-hmm. and and i finally just in the past month or so and i and i attribute it a lot to to, to moving because the house where the kids grew up is just full of memories and mm-hmm. I couldn't walk into a room and, and uh, just be so profoundly sad and depressed. And yeah. um, so, you know, getting into a new place that's, that's much smaller and uh, I've got a couple new grandbabies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, uh, we're going to make new memories in the new yeah. house. And uh, so um, I'm, you know, I still have bad days and I'll never get over it. Um, of course. But, uh, you, you can't. There's just no way yeah. to do that. It's not supposed to happen that way. You, right. you should die before your kids do. That's but right. uh, um, but you can't do it by yourself. Uh, yeah. You've got to have uh, friends and family and, and people you can talk to. Um, yes. So, um, I didn't want to do anything. I, did, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. It's just, it just so... You know, so much grief. But once I started reaching out and talking, talking about it is the big thing. Uh, working through why you feel this way and why it hurts and why why does this why is this going on and mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, my wife uh, we struggled at first because she didn't know how to help me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to ask her to help me, and um, we struggled through that. And she has a child who. Um, is ill mm-hmm. and so uh, she's obviously very concerned about that as I am and so we weren't doing a very good job of grieving at the same time yes. uh, of course she was grieving for my son as I was grieving yes. for her daughter and um, but um, uh, um, we got around that yeah. and um, so it's, um, well, most of us have just never been taught how to grieve well, and that's why I asked that question because I think that, you know, um, there's a saying that, and I don't know who came up with it. You can probably Google it, but it's, it says uh, grief needs a witness, and um, that's exactly what you're talking about. And I just want to encourage others uh, who are right now grieving something, the loss of a child, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a job, the loss of just a season of life. Or maybe your kids are still alive, but they're grown up and they moved out and you don't have those memories. It's like you've got to learn to first off, like name what you lost. Like what have I really lost here in this? And then be able to talk about it with somebody 
uh, it's so incredibly important. And then also what I would just add, and you mentioned it too, is life is filled with transitions. And if we don't learn how to transition well, we're not going to learn how to live well. And so you have to hold together. Here's what I lost. And I'm not, I'm never going to not grieve this. Cause like you said, in your case, a parent should never have to bury their kid. I'm never going to not grieve that, but I'm also going to learn how to, to receive some of the new blessings in this new season of life and some you of the new to pick it up and hold it, see right. it for what it is and realize that uh, it's like the serenity prayer. You, there's some things you cannot change. That's and, exactly right. And I've always been one of those persons that thinks I can do anything. Yes. Uh, and for the first time in my life, I, I couldn't change this. Yeah. And, um, it, it's, it's, it's tough. And I, I, I'm still not quite, ready to uh you know serve as a mentor or speak publicly about i guess i am now you're doing, i say you are doing it <laughs> maybe, you maybe are I doing am. it maybe yeah I you are ready. ready yeah uh but but um it's um it, it's just you know a part of life and, and our society uh does everything in its power to deny um what happens in life we were born and we live and we die and, None of us are going to escape that Absolutely. final outcome. Uh, the 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 trick is, and this is what I've learned the most during this grieving process, is you have to uh, take advantage of every second of every minute of every day yeah. and live and be happy. I've just I'd been unhappy for so long, and mm-hmm. suddenly I started feeling happy again once I was able to get to the acceptance place. Yeah. And it and and just because you accept something doesn't mean you're denying it. That's right. Um, and that you're not. Uh, I just look for the good memories. And, yes. And uh, and there wasn't very many unpleasant ones. Um, it's just um, they were haunting me. And uh, yeah, which I is just, a part of that process as I well, right? The guilt the, and the all yep, that. Oh, the guilt was horrible. I yeah. was like, I, I was, I was one of the last people that talked to him, and and yeah. uh, I just. Thought, what what could I have said different? Totally. Or what could I have done? And and I blamed myself and had to work through all that yes. guilt. But um, uh, which is totally normal. No matter what kind of parent you were or weren't, everybody experiences guilt. Everybody, and that's a part of that process. Which I know it sounds like you've studied and you're aware of those stages. Well, I'll give you a spoiler alert from the book, and I probably shouldn't. And my co-author will probably slap me. Uh, but. Um, during this process, over the last 30 years, I lost my faith completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came to the conclusion that uh, no loving God would allow this kind of stuff to happen uh, to three eight-year-old kids or yeah. uh, anybody for that matter. Yeah. And when the West Side School shootings happened, um, I went to my pastor and I said, explain this to me. Yeah. And he couldn't. Right. Uh, all he could tell me was, you got to have faith. I said, faith in what? Yeah. And um, so, I mean, I, I quit going to church. I just, I, I, uh, I lost my faith. Yeah. And um, I could always tell when the HBO documentaries were playing on HBO because I get phone calls in the middle of the night. Uh, and the phone rang about 3 o'clock in the morning one night. That's back when we had landlines. And... Um, and I could hear the HBO documentary playing in the background. <clears throat> and this lady said, um, are you the Dan Stidham that's in the documentary? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, well, I just wanted to let you know that I'm watching this and I can relate to Damien and 
how he is misunderstood and uh, and basically uh, you know crucified for something he didn't do. Mm. And she goes, "I'm fixing to kill myself," and um, I just wanted to let you know I I I, uh, I thought you have done an outstanding job and that you never gave up and I admire that and I said wait 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 a minute don't, don't, you can't kill yourself yeah. um is there some somebody it's the old cliche is there somebody you can call yeah, yeah. um and no I don't have anybody nobody likes me I, I I'm gothic like Damien was and I'm an outsider I don't have any friends at school I just I'm done and and I said no can't do this there's got to be a way out you've got a lot of life to live and a, and a lot to live for and and then I found myself saying something I never thought I would say I said you have to have faith and uh and when I said it I thought that's the same Go back at you. nonsense that I heard <laughs> and I thought maybe I'm making this worse instead of better and uh yeah. slowly she came around and we talked for about three hours and she started kind of getting happier and I said now call me back tomorrow so I'll know you're okay and and never knew her name uh she she called me the next day and said thank you so much for talking me off the ledge and and that's how I found my faith back wow that's pretty incredible I because you're right you know it's 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 a it's a age old problem right the odyssey or you know it's the problem of 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 evil and suffering of how can God a loving God allow even a 30, is it 32? Is that what your son was? He's 34. 34. How can he allow even a 34-year-old, right? Any, any of this kind of stuff to happen. He sees that every single day, and it's like, how is that possible? And sometimes it does seem like it's so much easier just to uh, pretend like God is not there, but then you're still left with suffering. It doesn't go away, and now you don't have any answers, and you don't have any hope. Now it's just over. And it's like, and, and, and the thing, I think it was C.S. Lewis that pointed this out of like, if all of this was just a chance and we all just, you know, a big bang or whatever, then why is there purpose? Why do we all, why do we even care about suffering? Why do we even care about death? Like there's no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean, none of it ever means anything, but it does. And we know that. And we know whenever a parent buries their child, this is not right. It's not the way that could ever, nobody would say that's the, it's a good thing. We all know that is a bad, bad, bad thing. And the reason is because we were created for something better. We were created for a world with no death and with no loss and with no goodbyes. And I think like that's, I'm just echoing your words. If I think there's times in my own life and I've not experienced loss, like you've experienced loss, but even as a pastor, there are times where I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how this is possible. Like, I don't know, God. And like, if you're good and if you're in control, but then it's like, well, what other narrative am I going to believe? Like, what other story am I going to anchor my hope in or my faith in that's a better story or better narrative than the one that I've read here? And then how am I going to have hope apart from that? And so that's where the faith comes in. You're like, I don't know. Oh, that's one of my favorite quotes, and I don't know who who said it. Of course, if you read it on the internet, you probably won't get the right <laughs> quote anywhere, the right person attributed to the quote, but it's basically um, uh, the storm will pass and uh, you got to look for the silver lining, and mm -hmm. there always is one. Mm -hmm. um, and um, just uh, make every moment count. Yeah. That's the trick. And, and um, uh, it's a. Uh, it's hard to explain, and, and I guess 
I guess the good Lord maybe doesn't want us to have an explanation for everything, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, and you probably, I'm sure somebody threw this at you at some point and you probably wanted to punch them in the face and they did, but it is the story of Job, you know, of, I mean, Job asked God, why, you know, why did you do this? Like, why have you, and God never gives him an answer. You know, we, we look at the book of Job, we know the answer because we, we read it and we see what happens in hindsight, but he never tells Job ever. You know, he never gives him an answer and says, well, Job, you know, actually this is going to be a canonization of Scripture. It's going to really help a lot of people through suffering years later. He could have told him that. He doesn't give him an answer. Maybe he wants us to figure it out on our own. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I wrestle with that. And sometimes because, I mean, again, we all suffer. I think part of my issue is like I want to at times live life. I really want to eliminate faith from my life. I know that sounds crazy as a pastor, but it's like I want to be able to explain everything. And if I can explain everything, then I no longer have to be dependent on God. And I feel like that's the one thing that he knows at this point is what keeps us somewhat tethered to him is dependency and faith. And so I don't know. I don't have the answers. I'm trying to figure it out myself. And so I think, I think we all go through that uh, yeah. same stage in our lives. Yeah, um, I agree. And the good news is what I tell people is that whatever's inside of you, God can handle it. So your anger, your doubts, your questions, your fears, that's what I love about the Psalms. You read the Psalms, and like a lot of them seem like blasphemy. It's like people feel like if I could never possibly tell God what I really think about him or about the world, or he would be, he'd kill me. And it's like, no, go read the Psalms. Like the way that David talks to God at times is like, yeesh. And God wanted that in the scriptures, and I think it's because what he wants is a relationship, like not uh, just uh, like essays. Like he would rather have the rough draft version of our honesty in our heart than just like this edited perfect whatever. So anyways, that's I really appreciate you going there with me. Like I said, when we started this, I didn't know uh, where our podcast would go or what we would talk about. I loved hearing about the West Memphis 3, but even more than that, I love just hearing your own heart. And so thank you for being vulnerable and sharing those things. And it's helped me. It really, truly has. I mean that. And I, I know that it will help other people as well. So. Well, again, that's one of the main goals of my book is to unequivocally explain why these kids didn't do it and that they're innocent. And... Um, they didn't do themselves any favors at times. Uh, uh, some of the things they said and did, and uh, but right. uh, it it all the satanic panic and mm-hmm. the conduct of the police and um, the conduct of the state, and and then it's like, well, we can't admit we made a mistake because then we might have to pay out money for reparations for eighteen years and seventy eight days, and so um, that's the part that I find troubling, and I really struggled because I did not know what happened and I just got the phone call and said being Jonesboro at nine thirty in the morning and, and um, You answered the call. Uh, so um it happened and and it was over and it seemed like a good thing at the time, but the more I learned how it happened, because um, people ask me all the time, you know, how did, how did that happen and explain it to me how that works and because mm-hmm. it's it's really doesn't make any sense that someone would plead guilty to something they didn't do but um nobody wanted to go to trial and take the risk uh and it may have taken another five years to get a new trial um and witnesses had, had passed and um 
of course, the state's case, the, the wheels could come completely off of it because we learned uh, that uh, the boys were, uh, it wasn't sexual mutilation, it, it was animal predation. Mm. And so um, um, I have a turtle uh, that hangs from the rearview mirror of my car, uh, and I bought two of them. I sent one to Jason Baldwin. He has uh, his hanging on his rearview mirror mm. for the last 10 years. Um, and um, turtles what uh, um, set them free. Wow. Crazy. Man, there's – so I feel like we should have, like, uh, Paragon Podcast Episode 1 with Sim, Episode 2, 3, 4. Like, there's so much. And uh, I, you got to get that book done. Uh, you really is, do. Now that I moved in – No more excuses. Uh, my wife's not going to like it, but I am going to go – Back to when I'm not on the bench, I'm going to be writing book, and I've just got to add a few. I'm going to show up at your book signing whenever you have that. <laughs> All right, uh, I'll get you an autograph. I'll be there, man. I'd love to have it. So, well. Again, there's so much more we could talk about with the uh, uh, West Memphis Three and, and grief and all those things. It's been fantastic. But I think we'll uh, end with our rapid fire questions, like we do in every single episode. Um, and so, you ready for them? As ready as all of Yeah, and so <laughs> you, you you probably don't get on the other end a lot of times to get in question, do you? No, I don't. I'm not used to that. <laughs> How do you think I could do? Do you think I could be a lawyer? You think I could? I'm considering. So, all right. Um, question number one: What is either the last show that you watched or book that you read? Uh, as I told you before we started, I, it's been so long since I've read a book because mm. I'm writing. Yep. I'm actually writing two books. I'm writing a the harvest of innocence and then i'm working on a fictional book um wow. uh loosely based on uh uh events that i've encountered along my path in life and mm. um but um the last book i can remember reading is um biography of thomas jefferson okay and that's been a couple of years ago yeah. and of course um I, I like to watch the the crime TV uh, yep. with, with my wife. Yeah, um, it's interesting. But since since my son passed, I find it more difficult to watch those sure. because I can relate to the grief of these people, yes. and, and it makes me wonder why are they putting these people through this? Yes, uh, yes, on TV. But but um, it's more comedy in your life. Uh, yeah, but, um, <laughs> I haven't been to a movie since COVID began. Um, you know, I watch movies on netflix i think the last one i watched was the new james bond uh, oh, yeah. movie but, of course uh, uh, my sister told me i needed to watch uh, a movie called gray man i don't know what it's about oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's supposed to be yeah good. yeah uh, just uh came out yeah it was just released on netflix i've seen it so or i've seen that it's out i haven't watched it either so but looks great uh favorite band That's or just favorite genre of music if you don't have a favorite band you know, I, because I've had interaction with Eddie Vedder, I would have to say Pearl Jam. Uh, ah, excellent. The, the first album is amazing. Um, yeah. And, of course, I'm a classic rock kind of guy, so um, uh, Doobie Brothers, uh, there's so many of the, the Van Halen. Yeah, Van Hagar. Yeah, I say Van Halen or Van Hagar. <laughs> let's be let's be specific. That's good. What's your favorite meal? Well, Atlantic salmon, believe it or not. 
Okay. And they make some of the best that's down the street. Here at Chow? And on both sides of the street. Okay, Skinny and JT. I've done yeah. Okay. Excellent. It's great. I do like some salmon. Um, give us a snapshot. No. I passed a question. What is on your nightstand right now? Magazine for my Glock. Remind me <laughs> not to ever. Not that I would try to break in, but not to go to that house. Um, <laughs> An extra magazine, I should say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is the only thing on my nightstand. Uh, well, it's funny you would yes, ask the, the essentials. Uh, <laughs> give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life right now that brings you a lot of joy. Uh, doing FaceTime with my granddaughter who lives in Fayetteville. I don't get to see very often. Mm -hmm. She's coming in this weekend. I can't wait. Oh, excellent. Hope you have a fantastic time. Last question. Uh, what is one thing that you are deeply grateful for right now? That I got to keep my promise to Jesse Misko. Mm -hmm. Didn't end the way I wanted it to in the courtroom uh, with a fight. Uh, but, uh, I got to keep my promise. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We've been wanting you to come on for a long time. I know you're a very busy man, have a lot going on, but really do appreciate, seriously, you making time to come on and, and share your heart and just your work and uh, all of that with us. Thanks for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. If you're still listening, thanks for tuning in. As always, uh, we're so glad to have you with us. If you want to, uh, we would encourage you, please go give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Um, that helps people to find us more quickly and learn about just incredible stories like we just heard and the amazing people who live here. Also, um, if you've not found us already, uh, we're on Facebook. Follow us. Give us a like there. We're also on Instagram as well. As always, thanks so much for listening. Until next time.